You got that red button push? All right. We're uh, studying in uh, our Doctrine of Bibliology. We uh, already finished the Doctrine of uh, Preparation and Revelation, and we're in the, the Doctrine of Inspiration now, and uh, we're considering the extent of inspiration. The extent of inspiration. So uh, the, the process of, in, of inspiration, and this is something that uh, I, there are good men, very good men, uh, men that, that I fellowship with, men that uh, I would have them come and preach in, in my pulpit, and uh, they, they, they might disagree with me on this, but I believe that the process of inspiration ended when the original document was written. And uh, many, many people will hold up their King James Bible and say, I hold in my hand the inspired Word of God. I don't... I, I, I'm reluctant to do that. I understand that they mean derived inspiration, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I would prefer to say I'm holding up the preserved Word of God because I don't like to muddy the difference between preservation and inspiration, between, between divine inspiration and providential preservation because they really are different things. And so I would say... Uh, that the process of inspiration ended when the original document was written. So whenever David penned one of the Psalms, that's when inspiration ended, after that was completed, or whenever Matthew wrote his Gospel, or whenever Luke wrote the book of Acts, or when the Apostle John completed the Revelation, then the process of inspiration for that book of the Bible ended. And now this doesn't mean that we don't have the Word of God today because none of the originals have survived. Uh, after God gave man his inspired words, then he preserved them providentially for all future generations. And so I just think keeping the distinction between them is good. It, it really is best that we, we don't have the originals because if we did have them, there are men that would worship them as they did the brazen serpent in 2 Kings chapter 18. You remember that uh, they had to destroy that thing because there were men, you know, that were worshiping the brazen serpent. And it's not surprising if they would worship the golden calf that Jeroboam set up, then why would anybody be surprised that they would worship that brazen serpent? And uh, you, uh, we're not going to turn there in 2 Kings 18, but you can, you can read about the... the uh, them having to destroy uh, the, the brazen serpent. I, I, was it Josiah, I think, that did it? I can't remember. So. Uh, might have been Hezekiah, but in any case, uh, it was destroyed. And then uh, the giving of God's inspired words ended with the book of Revelation. And I do want to turn there in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Uh, there are, again, probably some who would disagree with my interpretation on this, but this is the only book in the Bible that ends with, uh, with this warning. And, and I think it's significant that Revelation, the last book given, is the one that ends with this warning. Uh, let's read uh, beginning at verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. 
And he which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So, uh, I think that the application here extends beyond just the book of Revelation. Uh, some people might disagree with me. But uh, we saw it, and you can find something very similar to that in Deuteronomy, uh, where we're not supposed to take away or to add to the Word of God. And uh, this, this is stated a little bit stronger than, than the other passage uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament. But certainly it's... Uh, uh, helps us to see that tampering with the text of Scripture is, is not a good idea. And uh, you better do it uh, understanding that God might judge you for it. I, I don't know exactly what these, these things mean, but I do know, uh, I believe in eternal security. I, I believe that there are, there are good men that are truly saved, and nevertheless they have the wrong idea, probably because that's what they were taught, and they're more loyal to a teacher than they are to the Word of God, and so they, uh, they, they question or doubt portions of God's Word, and if it was up to them, it would be removed from the Bible. Uh, and so uh, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes, that's, that's just all I'm saying. Even when you get up to preach, it, it, it isn't just, this isn't just for publishers this warning. In other words, so if somebody decides to make themselves a new version of the Bible and they eliminate those verses in John chapter 5 that are questionable or they eliminate the last uh, eight verses of, of Mark chapter 16, uh, then, uh, you know, we're not talking just about publishers. When, it, when somebody gets up and through their preaching or through their teaching causes people to doubt whether some part of the Bible is the Word of God, or whether they, th they, they want to correct it and say, well, you know, this was probably some kind of slip. Some scribe made an error, and uh, we, can, we can just go ahead and change it because it makes more sense to me if we do. And uh, I, I, frankly, I sat under classes with professors uh, when I was in grad school who said almost exactly those things. And uh, I, I just think it's, uh, that's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, and uh, by the way, one of those guys, you know, frankly, within five years after I, had, I was his student, he died of cancer. I'm not saying that, you know, that everybody is going to die of cancer who takes a differing view from me on this doctrine of inspiration, but uh, I, I be careful about that. Uh, that's all I can say is I'll, I, I think you should be careful. And uh, so the, the important thing here though as far as the extent of inspiration is just to remember that keep, keep inspiration and preservation uh, separate. It's, it's just better if you do because if you, call, if you call the King James Bible the inspired word of God then what's preserved? It's uh, and, and there's a lot of verses, in fact, there's more verses about preservation than there are about inspiration. So, uh, that's, that's my view. And we're going to go on now and we're going to consider the fourth uh, thing, the fourth uh, step in the doctrine of good bibliology, and that would be inerrancy. Inerrancy, the purity of truth. And uh, we're going to see as we go on, the next one will be infallibility. Uh, I, I guess most people, because I was that way for a long time, uh, don't uh, discern any difference between inerrant and infallible, but in fact there are some differences. 
And uh, so we'll try to uh, um, make that clear as we go throughout our study here. Uh, a definition of inerrancy is the characteristic of the written word of God as being without error as given in the original autographs and by extension to the copies. The technical word is apographs. So, yeah, so something that came from the original is an apograph. But autograph, apograph, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. And uh, so let's look at a couple of verses that uh, talk about inerrancy. Can you read uh, the definition one more time? Yes, the characteristic of the written word of God uh, as being without error, as given in the original autographs and by extension to the autographs or copies. Well, just a couple of verses I think that uh, uh, to me uh, show this is the 119th Psalm, verse 160. I bet a lot of you have this verse already underlined in your Bible, maybe. I don't know. Uh, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. That's... If it's not underlined in your Bible, uh, you might consider it Psalm 119, verse number 160. 160. Okay. 160. 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. And how long is it true? Every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So this verse tells us that right from the beginning, from the moment that God gives his word, and enduring until forever is the Word of God. And so uh, um, I think that's a great verse that shows us the uh, doctrine of inerrancy. Also, uh, for one that might be a little bit more known, uh, uh, John 17 and verse 17. Uh, I'm pretty sure I could quote it, but I'll read it anyways. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Thy word is truth. So let's uh, let's talk about this a little bit. Inerrancy means with, without error as originally written. So it's a perfect record of truth. A perfect record of truth. It's kind of funny how how you know man's best attempt sometimes to set the record straight. Sometimes are just you know we can't help ourselves. We're fallible. I heard this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it kind of helps illustrate how how men just you know we're not capable of of truth all the time. Uh, uh, there, after World War II, there was a, a train pulling out of Germany, and uh, and in there were four seats, two seats uh, facing two seats, and and uh, in two of those seats was uh, was this uh, old German woman and her uh, very attractive granddaughter. And sitting opposite of them was a two-star general and a private. And that's just the seats they got assigned when they got on the train. And so the train is going uh, down the road for a while, and they're all sitting there quietly, kind of looking at each other. And the train goes through the tunnel, and then everybody uh, hears two sounds. They hear the sound of a kiss, and then the sound of a face being slapped. And then the train comes out of the tunnel, and the four of them are sitting there looking at each other. 
And the grandmother is thinking, you know, how dare that young private try to steal a kiss from my granddaughter. I'm glad that she slapped his face. <laughs> and uh, the granddaughter is thinking, she's a little bit flattered that the private would want to steal a kiss from her. But uh, she's a little bit embarrassed that her grandmother overreacted and slapped him. And the general, well, the general, he was kind of admiring the young private for uh, being bold enough to steal a kiss in the dark, but he was wondering why he got slapped. <laughs> but the private, he knew in the darkness of the tunnel that there was an opportunity for him to kiss a beautiful girl and slap him. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we think we know the truth. And we don't necessarily know the truth, but God's Word is the truth. We may be absolutely convinced that we know the truth, but God's Word is truth. And I think it, it, that's what inerrancy means. Is, uh, we, we, because we're humans, we're just, we have a propensity towards error. And uh, so God cannot produce error. Whatever God makes is good, which is why I don't like the doctrines of Calvinism. Uh, because uh, uh, to a certain extent, when you when you uh, start really uh, thinking Calvinism through, eventually you have to come to the conclusion that God has ordained or made people sinners. And uh, I just I can't believe that. I believe that everything that God has made is good, and that if something has become bad, it's become bad apart from God and not because of God. And so, uh, it, this is a doctrine of which the character of God is at stake. God must be true. God must be true. Uh, look at a couple of verses. If you're in John, go back and look at John chapter 3. And verse 33. He, hath, he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. God is true. Amen? Amen. And then uh, Romans chapter 4. Excuse me, Romans 3 and verse number 4. Romans 3 and verse number 4. We'll read verse 3 for context. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. That's kind of the point that I'm trying to, to make here. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So, every man really is a liar. We, we may be certain that we know the truth, but, but only God knows the truth. And, and God has given us His Word so that we might know the truth. And if we don't have God's word, then we don't have truth. And uh, one more verse, uh, uh, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So... God cannot lie. God cannot speak anything other than truth. Now, there's some historical issues that I want to cover. The word uh, inerrancy 
was really first applied to the Bible only in the mid-1800s. Before that time, uh, the term infallible was nearly always used to discover or to, to uh, define uh, the Bible's uh, truth. But uh, B.B. Warfield, who was professor of Bible at Princeton Theological Seminary, popularized this new use of the word inerrancy and uh, defined it as belonging only to the non-existing originals. So uh, B.B. Warfield was the first one uh, to suggest that, yes, the originals, the autographs, were inerrant, but uh, things that have been preserved are not as good as the original. So, uh, so then soon afterwards, the two terms became uh, thought of as synonymous, even in many di uh, dictionary definitions. But historically, however, Bible believers have always used infallible to refer to the existing text, while using the word inerrant uh, for, for the uh, uh, originals. But the paradigm shift was it was kind of subtle, and I think it was uh, not a good thing. And uh, so modern scholars believe only that the lost originals are inerrant and infallible, and, and in their minds, thus authoritative. And they, they don't really uh, see a whole lot of authority in any version of the Bible today that exists, or even, for that matter, in any Greek manuscript that exists, because they consider them to be uh, uncertain. They just can't be sure what, because of differences in the manuscripts, what's, what should be in the Bible and what shouldn't be in the Bible. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, later when, when we, uh, I, 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 maybe it's in the next point, uh, probably in, in preservation. We're going to talk about, you know, how, how those different manuscripts, and I forget the number because there's, there's kind of new things being found all the time, but uh, there's more evidence for uh, the Bible than just the manuscripts, which would be the handwritten uh, copies of, of the Bible before the printing press. Aside from the manuscripts, <coughs> there are also uh, the um, uh, lectionaries, and there are also uh, biblical citations, you know, the... the uh, when somebody would preach or write a letter, and that letter has survived, and in many cases uh, they, they spent a lot of time quoting scriptures, those old-time preachers, the first uh, three or four hundred years of, of Christianity, uh, their sermons were a lot of uh, scripture quoting, not very much illustrations, just just scripture quoting, uh, kind of different than these days. These days you have, you read a Bible verse and then you tell a bunch of stories is, is how a lot of preachers preach. And uh, I, I really, even if I wanted to do that, it wouldn't work out because uh, the illustrations that, that crack us up and it sound really good in English, they don't make any sense in Korean. And, and the, the people, the Korean people, if I told a bunch of stories, the Korean people might be entertained by the stories, but they would have no idea why I was telling the stories. And so, when, when I do give illustrations uh, when I'm preaching, it has to be really clear and to the point. Uh, I have to make the point pretty obvious, otherwise, otherwise it, it just gets lost in the translation. So, um, but uh, we, we'll, we'll talk about that. Critical, um, textual critics of today 
basically reject anything except the Greek manuscripts for the New Testament. And uh, there isn't, you know, a whole lot with the Old Testament. All, all that there really exists is the Masoretic texts. Uh, but the Masoretic texts, most of the Masoretic texts are, you know, from like the 1300s, 1400s. Uh, they're, they're not nearly as old as a lot of the Greek New Testament manuscripts. Though. Be, be, but uh, we know how that they, they transmitted and kept those Masoretic texts. And so we can have a great deal of confidence. For some people, uh, they would put more authority in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Uh, but there really isn't a whole lot of point in looking at that. And nobody... Nobody would say that the Septuagint is anything close to being 100% accurate because some of the, and also there's not a standardized Septuagint. There's, you know, they, they always talk about when you read books and something that they're saying, okay, he was copying the Septuagint, but there wasn't a standardized Septuagint. The, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures was constantly changing, being edited, it all depended on, on the source, and that kind of stuff is not clear at all today. So uh, I think the, the uh, you know, when they say, uh, I, I've got a lot of books, commentaries in my library where the, they'll say that the Jesus was quoting the Septuagint. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> Not for a second. Um, uh, Jesus spoke Hebrew. And Jesus spoke Aramaic. Jesus spoke Greek. Jesus speak any language he wanted to. <laughs> He's God. He's God. Hey, he did not need to quote a translation of the Hebrew, he could just quote it himself. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I think it's absurd, uh, frankly, to say that Jesus uh, quoted the Septuagint when he quoted uh, Hebrew scriptures. Just absolutely absurd. But uh, in any case, the, the a lot of the contention in script in uh, textual criticism resolves around the fact that uh, most textual critics would reject the use of any source other than those Greek manuscripts, and then the Greek manuscripts, are, of course, are divided into two general families of manuscripts, the, the, uh, the, the Egyptian or Alexandrian texts and the Syrian texts. And uh, so uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more in when we get to a preservation, but it's, uh, maybe it's good just to have some understanding of that as we go forward in our discussion about inherency. Uh, the principles... The principles uh, are used uh, by Westcott and Hort, who were the first ones to make a uh, what you would call a revised edition of the English Bible. Uh, now, let me quickly summarize, I guess, the, the, the history of the English Bible. The, the English Bible probably uh, started with... Uh, um, Wycliffe. Uh, and and uh, Wycliffe largely translated uh, his Bible not from not from Hebrew or from Greek, but from Latin. Latin. The Vulgate? Yes. And uh, so so uh, then after Wycliffe, then, then you had the uh, um, different other versions, the Geneva Bible, the Matthew Bible, and so forth like that. And uh, then, so there was, uh, there was, uh, you know, four or five different uh, versions of the English Bible that were being used by English-speaking Christians, and uh, even the, the the Anglicans, the Church in England, they, you know, they would use the Latin 
but they, they, they knew that hardly anybody in England spoke Latin, only the really highly educated people. And so uh, it was decided to make an official version, and uh, that's where the King James Version came about. The King James Version, at, you know, uh, actually, uh, most of your separatist groups, Baptists and others, uh, they didn't really embrace the King James Bible when it came out. Uh, when the Mayflower Pilgrims and others went to uh, uh, went to the New uh, World and, and uh, landed on the shores of North America, uh, most of them had the Matthews Bible, or some of them the Geneva Bible. And so it took a while, uh, when I say a while, 150 years before there was a general acceptance that the King James was a, uh, a little better translation than some of those other ones. But it's, it's interesting that 91% of the King James Bible is word for word exactly what the Wycliffe Bible was. Huh. 91%. So even though, even though the, the King James translators did not use the Latin when they made the King James Bible, they used the uh, they used what was available to them, that which was Masoretic Hebrew text, and then, uh, you know, I guess around 15 or 20 uh, um, Greek texts of the New Testament. Uh, but these men were very honest scholars. They were highly, highly ethical scholars, and uh, so they, they recognized that in the manuscripts available to them, there were certain passages that weren't in any of the manuscripts they had. That being the last few the last few verses of Mark chapter 16, and that verse uh, about the Trinity in uh, in First John uh, chapter 5, and several others. They realized that their manuscripts didn't contain any of those things, but but they did have they did have translations. They had a Coptic uh, translation. They had a Syriac Peshitta translation, and they had. Um, many theolog or many um, uh, church father quotations. They had many lectionaries that contained those verses, and so they knew that even though those verses weren't in the Bible or, or in the manuscripts that they possessed, that those verses were in fact originally inspired and part of the Bible. And just because of the course of time, and heretics and different things, the manuscripts that survived that they had access to. Uh, they weren't in there. So Westcott Horse then they set down these principles by which they would they would uh, you know use for making what was then the English uh, Revised Version. The manuscripts with the harder reading were preferred over those with the easier reading. So if you had a manuscript and it was really hard to understand some the way it was uh, translated and then one that was easy, they always went with the harder. And uh, they also said we, we uh, prefer the shorter reading over the longer ones uh, because they figured that scribes would be want to add uh, words to make the meaning clear. So they said uh, shorter readings preferred over the harder ones and then earlier dated manuscripts were preferred over uh, later ones. And uh, when we come back next week, we're going we're gonna to get into this new paradigm of inerrancy that was set forth by Westcott and Hort in the 1800s when they made the English Revised Version. And uh, I think this is where a, a lot of people maybe aren't as aware uh, about the, how this has affected what we have today with all the multitudes of translations. Uh, so let's close in prayer and ask God's blessing on the rest of the day. Lord, we love you. Thank